And we always preach on the Bible, by the way. Um, this series was just focused on Scripture and studying Scripture. And, um, and what's interesting is over the years, you've probably seen, I've seen lots of news articles, blog posts, et cetera, um, that sometimes like things about like books or the Bible can like pop up at different times. Well, there was something that happened several years ago. Maybe this stood out to you or you might remember this. But several years ago, um, GQ magazine, they actually published a list of classic books. Classic books. But they called the title of their article, Books You Don't Have to Read. 21 books you don't have to read. And they looked at some of the classics, like Catcher in the Rye, and things maybe you had to read in school, and maybe you read Cliff Notes for whatever, but things that, that actually are good material, but they, in their own words, they said, you don't have to read these. Um, and what was interesting was, the Bible was on that list. The Bible was on that list. And the article quoted that the Bible is repetitive, contradictory, um, but they also said this, that the Holy Bible is rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live by it, but who in actuality have not read it. Ooh, whoa. And I have to say, in a way, GQ is right. In a way, sadly, GQ is right. Not that you shouldn't read it. I want to encourage you all to read it, and we should know it, and we should read it for ourselves. But that a lot of people who supposedly live by the Bible don't actually haven't actually read it for themselves. You know, a lot of people depend on what they hear other people saying, even people in my position as a pastor preaching. They depend on what they hear about the Bible or what other people have told them or what the news has said or articles like this. And because of that, uh, there's developed over time um, several, uh, quite a few phrases that we tend to throw around and we think are biblical, but are not. Phrases, phrases like, everything happens for a reason, not in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves, not in the Bible. Uh, you've, you've heard some more of these, absolutely, and the thing about them is that they all do have biblical roots in a way. They come from a scripture, but the thing is we've kind of gotten them a bit wrong or twisted them over time. And they're, they're popular because they, they tend to express things that we believe or we think are helpful for us to think about. But the thing is, we've misunderstood the scripture that they've come from. So it's super important to dig deeper into the Bible when you hear cliches, to get to the roots of where they came from, and actually to see, to shed light on what does the Bible actually say here. So with all that, we're going to dive into one of these sayings, one of these cliches today that we're going to kind of unpack through a method of biblical study. Um, and it's one that I've said, it's one that you've probably said, and that is, God never gives you more than you can handle. Who's heard that before? Just raise your hand. You heard that before? Those of you guys online, just raise your hand or type in the chat box there. Have you heard that before? Well, I have to say, I remember the first time, maybe, maybe it wasn't the first time, but it was a time that it was said to me. And it was when I was um, kind of going back to church after a hiatus. I was uh, studying environmental science at University of Maryland before I was in ministry. And um, kind of getting accustomed to the ways and the ministry of the church. And at this time, I, as a runner, kind of long-time runner here, um, I developed an injury. 
And I was going to doctors and getting checked out. It's like in my hamstring. And, uh, and I was going to physical therapy. And the thing, like, it's having trouble healing. It laid me off from uh, quite a long time from running. And I remember, like, we were at, like, a women's gathering in my church. And we were sitting around asking for prayer requests. And I remember sharing, can you pray for my hamstring, right? You prayed something like that. Can you pray for my knee? Pray for my hamstring. Like, not healing, whatever. And I remember a well-meaning saint of the church looking across the table at me and saying, honey, God never gives you more than you can handle. You're going to be all right. And I just remember looking at her and just looking and being like, no, right? I don't believe that. I'm not sure if I believe that. I mean, and maybe you've experienced that before. You know, I've yet to, by the way, I've yet to meet someone who said it was helpful when someone told them that or told them something like that. You know, but, but I think, I think this, this saint of the church was, was really trying to express think something like, you can get through this, you can do it, that God is with you. I think that was her intention. But when you're struggling, when you hear that, that phrase, you tend to hear two things, or at least I heard two things from what she said. First, when she said, God gives you, never gives you more than you can handle, to me, first she was saying, your struggle indicates a lack of faith or strength on your part. You should be able to handle it, right? I'm not handling it well. You should be able to. Like, God, there's a lack of faith on my part. But the second thing was that God was the one causing my struggle. God was the one who gave me my struggle, who caused it. And neither of those things were very helpful at the time. Um, but, but let's talk about that phrase. Let's get into the question first, where does it come from in the Bible? Like I said, it's not in the Bible, but there is a root scripture from which it comes from, just as all these kind of well-meaning cliches do. But, but, and we're going to look at how, how is it right, but also where do we get it wrong? And that scripture comes from uh, the chapter 10 in the letter of 1 Corinthians. We looked at 1 Corinthians last week when we were talking about women in ministry and leadership. Um, this week, we're going to look at a different chapter. Chapter, chapter 10, and, and it's verse 13 that this kind of phrase is, is rooted or interpreted from. And um, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, he tells us this. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So, so just take that. So, so today what we're going to do is unpack this scripture with kind of a method of Bible study. If you were part of our Learn to Study the Bible class, we talked about this, but we're going to do this as a big group. And it has pieces of, of what we've talked about the last few weeks in interpretation. You'll see those familiar pieces. Um, but we're going to look at first observation then interpretation, and then application. This is something you can do on any passage of Scripture. You can observe what's going on, what does the passage say or what does it not say, interpretation, what does it mean, and application. How does, it, how does God speak to us today? So first, observation, looking at what this is saying. You know, initially, what do we notice is not here? It's also printed in your, in your worship guide, by the way. What is not here? Well, it doesn't say the words, he will, give, he will not give you more than you can handle. That's never actually quoted. And what is the text specifically talking about? What is it talking about? Temptation, right? It's talking about temptation. And we're going to get back to that in a couple of minutes. And it does, but it doesn't say every situation or every struggle that you're going through or whatever. It says temptations won't be, won't, you won't experience temptations without the ability to get through them or a way through them. And, and secondly, who gives the temptations? Not God, 
doesn't say that God gives the temptations. Instead, what is God's role? God's role is to protect us and to provide a way through. God always provides a way through. And there's nothing there, by the way, that says that you should do so alone. And that it should be through your own faith and your own strength. But to understand this a bit more, we, we need to interpret it. Those are kind of like what, what we've observed. We need to look at the context with it, which it was written in. So interpretation. What does the passage mean? And these are kind of the familiar pieces that we've walked through the last few weeks. First, what is the literary style and intent? First, it's a letter. It's a letter. Like he said, like, it's a letter. It's written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, who was transformed by Jesus, who literally fell off his horse. He was a persecutor of Christians uh, several decades after Jesus. And we see him fall off his horse, and he has this vision of Jesus, and he's, he's really changed, transformed from the inside out, and becomes one of the greatest church planters of all time. It's written by him to Christians in the city of Corinth, the ancient city of Corinth, which was kind of this, this uh, in-between place for travel and transportation. Like we said, it was kind of the Las Vegas of the ancient world, like, because what happens there, what stays there, right? All this stuff was taking place. Well, he started a church there, believe it or not. So, but when we look at a letter, we talked about this last week, we have to recognize that we're reading someone else's mail. And so when we're reading somebody else's mail, it may be written for us, but it was not originally written to us. It was written to address a certain situation. And that was why Paul wrote these letters, because there were problems that were coming out of these churches. And he addressed them in letters by getting back to them. Just as if somebody would send you a text right now, you would reply. Well, we get the reply part of the letter. So, but then we look at the historical and the situational context. So this letter overall was written to a group of relatively new Christians, baby believers, people that were newish in the faith. And so Paul had started the church in Corinth. He had started the church. He had invited people to accept Jesus, and they did, and he formed them into this little ecclesia, this little church community, and they're meeting in homes and marketplace and all that kind of stuff. And then eventually he left them. So this is just a couple years after they had come to faith. And the reason why I'm saying this is because for you, that might be part of your story, even where you sit right now. You may be new to faith or maybe coming back to faith in Christ, figuring out what it is that you believe about this Jesus. And the problem that Paul is addressing here, the problem he was addressing was that these people were supposedly following Jesus, but their lives looked the same as they had been before. Nothing had changed in them. Their actions, they were actually being drawn back to harmful behaviors of their past. You know, and some of you guys get this. You can sympathize with this. You can say, yeah, I've been following Jesus, but I've been drawn back into these things I know I should not be doing or saying or being involved in. And, and, and that's true. Some of us, you know, we worship Jesus, but life looks the same as before we met Jesus or before we started following. We're constantly being drawn back. But then you look at the passage context. Paul is writing to address the chaos that's happening in the church, these baby believers that are trying to follow Jesus, but at the same time drawn back into their old behaviors. He's writing to address the chaos that's happening, but he's also sharing, no, but the truth is that Jesus does transform your life. Jesus does change your life. But just like us, there were people who, there who were saying, no, that's impossible. People don't change. You can't be transformed. 
There's no way to change, that, that I'm stuck in who I am and who I was and that there's nothing at all from, from what I've been involved in that could ever change. And I think a lot of us, sometimes we feel the same way, right? I mean, we say those words like, oh, she won't change, he can't change. No, that's the way I am, right? All those types of things. We, we hear how uh, we need to live and act more like Jesus, the priorities in our lives. You know, people like me get up here and tell us, you know, to make Jesus a priority in your life, how you use yourself, use your words, use your body to glorify him. But then we realize, or there comes a stumbling block, that something that we approach that say, it feels impossible, it feels impossible. You don't, you know, Pastor Chris, you don't know what my life is like. You don't know the struggles that I've went through. You don't know all those things. You know, that, that it feels impossible that there's no way to change. But let me pause here. I think a lot of us really do feel that way. We, we, we say it's impossible to live the way that Jesus wanted. And that's essentially what the Corinthians were doing. They were living without regard to how their behaviors were actually reflect, reflecting who they were following. There was a disconnect. There was a disconnect there. And it's interesting because right before this passage, in the same chapter, chapter 10, right before the passage, Paul addresses another thing that's going on. Like I said, it's kind of chaotic in the church, right? Like, you know, just the craziness that's happening. And he addresses the thing, a thing called idols, idol worshiping, basically putting other things ahead of God. And he reflects back on a passage in the Old Testament scriptures about the Israelites. And he says this in verses 7 to 8. He says, do not, not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulgent revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. He's kind of referring back to other scriptures. He's warning against being drawn back into those kind of things and behaviors when change should have happened. He's warning against just coming to God when you need something, right? That sounds familiar. I don't know about you, but right? Or, or complaining. He refers back to when the Israelites were complaining when they were in the wilderness about how God was providing with them the same food every single day, right? Can you imagine that? Like frosted flakes from heaven every single day. You know, but I want to walk back in Egypt. At least we ate that kind of stuff, right? He was warning people who were complaining more than they were contributing. Does that sound familiar, right? Oh my gosh, it's like some things don't change, right? You seem to see those patterns. But what Paul is doing, on one hand, he's calling them out. And he's addressing the behavior that he's seeing. He's saying, well, yeah, some things like you're reflecting what happened in the past. But on the other hand, he's encouraging them. He's encouraging them. To say, no, the, the, the transformation that Christ wants to do in your life, it's not impossible, and it's not so overwhelming that it won't possibly ever happen. And so that's the context. That's what leads us into the verse that we get, God doesn't give you more than you can handle, or at least we misinterpret it that way. Because if we read what comes right before that verse 13, where we get that, that, that interpretation, right before that is what verse 12, right? Verse 12. So, um, so if you read verse 12, you see a little bit, a different frame for the passage because he says this. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he'll also provide a way out so that you can endure it. 
If you think that beginning part, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. It's a story that's reflected over and over in our lives and also in history, right? On April 10th, uh, 1912, there was a big boat that made its maiden voyage, set sail. It also became its last. Um, What was the name of that boat? Anyone know? The Titanic, right? It was traveling from Southampton, England to New York City. And five days later, um, what was said to be indestructible um, sank to the bottom of the ocean. 1,500 people were perished in that incident. Um, but there's a great question when it comes to the Titanic. You know, you've seen the movie, right? You've seen the, like, the, the, the iconic scenes that take place in that movie. You've read the book or the history. You at least have heard the story. But the question is, for the Titanic, why did so many people die? You know what the, any ideas? Why did so many, why did 1,500 people die from that ship? Any thoughts? Just, what's it? You just, okay, somebody else say something else. He just, yeah, he just went ahead. What, what are some reasons that you can think of why they died? Okay, they, yeah, they, they hit an iceberg, right? The water was super cold. You know, you remember, wait, you were, what? They were on the boat, yeah, like all those problems, but Ben just shouted out the right answer is that there weren't enough lifeboats. There were only 20, 20 lifeboats. Yeah, 20 lifeboats on that ship. Because the ship's owners thought they were unnecessary, that they would never need them. 20 lifeboats for that many people. They thought, that was actually a writing that says, we believe that the Titanic is a giant lifeboat. Right? Just positive thinking there, I guess. Right? But, but, and also they thought that it would clutter the deck and obscure first class passengers' views if you had too many lifeboats on the boat. See, the problem was not the iceberg. It was that there weren't enough lifeboats. The pride, Right? If you're standing firm, Paul says, be careful that you don't fall. Uh, that, that we think about that, just the common sense application here. So in other words, if you think things are going well, be careful. Be careful. Just when you're like, oh, that can never happen here. That can never happen to us. You know, churches that have said that, especially when it pertains to children's ministry or thing, have lots and lots of things that come up and happen and say, oh, well, we don't need those policies to protect our kids. We don't need those types of things. Once again, you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No one is immune. No one is immune. Pride comes before the fall and it can happen to you. None of us are immune to temptation. None of us at all. See, Paul, what he's getting at here is not, encouraging us not to give up, even when things seem impossible to change or overwhelming, but also to recognize it can happen to you. You know, that addiction, oh, you see those people, like they're on the street, they're having problems. That never happened. Like, be careful, right? It could happen here. Say, oh, well, yeah, they're homeless. They're whatever. They're wrestling with mental health. Like, Don't be careful, like anything can apply, anything can happen there. But also, Paul's pointing though to the point of temptation specifically, and I think we need to hear that. Things may look overwhelming or problematic, and I think Paul is saying though, you are not alone though. You know, be careful, don't put yourself up, don't say it'll never happen, but at the same time, God is faithful. God is faithful. When you're tempted, he'll provide a way out so you can endure it. He's saying, you're not alone, that God will provide a path through. 
But then something else we have to look at when we interpret this passage is also what else does the Bible say, right? When it comes to this passage versus the cliche that we carry around, what else does the Bible say? How else does this connect? Um, well, you see from the rest of the Bible, two things that are, this, that are cliche, that God never gives you more than you can handle, that that gets wrong about the character of God. When you look at scripture overall, that we see what's wrong is that it assumes everything that happens to you is what God has given you. That everything that happens to you is what God's giving you. That, that's not in the Bible, actually. You know, there's many things that are contrary to God and his desires for our lives. But that God doesn't give us everything that happens to us. You know, we hear over and over throughout the Bible that we have a God who loves us, who's working for our good in the world, who's working against forces of evil and brokenness and wants to use us in that redemption. And God promises that one day he will conquer that. But he doesn't cause evil to happen. He doesn't cause those things to happen. And God may occasionally allow challenging circumstances, but everything is not given by God. But the second thing is not just that it assumes everything happens to you is what God has given to you. It's also that it says to a fall, you should be able to handle all the stuff that happens in your life and deal with it alone. You should be able to handle it. And that's false because you're not meant to handle everything that happens in your life. That's why we have this, guys. That's why we need to gather. That's why we need to be with other people, as much as a struggle that is for some of us. We need God. We need other people in our lives. And that's often the way that God works. You know, over and over in Scripture, we see stories of God working through people. Yeah, you know, there might be a, a still small voice. There may be a burning bush. But over and over again, we see that God is working through people. And that's why we need each other. That's the way God often works. And, and, and also just to a point, too, that you think you can handle all the stuff in your life, you know, good luck with that. That means you have no need for Jesus. <laughs> you know, that what Jesus did is that it's something that we don't need. That Jesus is the most obvious example to recognize our need. That he came for us because we can't help ourselves. Because we can't solve our problems. And I don't know about you, but thousands of years of history kind of proves that. Over and over again, people have tried to correct ourselves, have tried to fix ourselves through policies and through laws and through rules and through ways of living and failed. So ultimately, we need to recognize that, no, we can't handle all this stuff. We need Jesus. And we need one another. I mean, Paul goes on another letter in Galatians 6, 2. He says this. He says, carry each other's burdens, and this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. Carry each other's burdens. That it's dangerous when we try to handle things alone. But the last piece here when we look at the scripture is the application, right? Okay, so we've observed what's going on. We've interpreted what does this mean. What does it mean for us? What is God saying to us? Well, I think a better phrase than the cliche, a better way to phrase the summary of this passage is more like, God can help you through whatever life gives you. God can help you through whatever life gives us. You know, many of us, we experience realities when we want to give up on God, when we want to go our own way, when it feels like, oh, I failed again and again and again. You know, so many experiences can tempt us to give on, up on the life that God has for us. You know, you hear the word temptations, you know, and what, what first comes to mind for you? 
Mine, what comes to mind for me is the song, My Girl. I don't know about you. So take that. There's, there's a group called The Temptations, by the way, who sang, what decade was that, 60s, something like that. But anyway, you know, Temptations. You know, usually we think of the word sin that goes along with that, you know, sins of greed or tempting us to ignore the call to live and give generously and sacrificially to the sin of hate, lashing out and degrading people instead of love, right? You see it all the time on social media. You know, the sin of complaining and negativity, seeing only the bad things. Sometimes we don't think about that. Failing to praise God. You know, it's easy to believe in Jesus but not live life differently or see differently. That for some of us, it's dying to those things. But it's also a reminder not to give up if it's hard to resist those things. But I don't think it's, I think it's important not to stop there because it's, sin is not the only thing that tempts us. You know, going back to that original phrase about God doesn't give us more than we can handle, we have all sorts of things that we have to handle in life. Uh, There's some things that tempt us, but there's other things that want us to give in or to give up. You know, to take grief, for instance. You know, grief is an overwhelming reality that many of us have, and it's a healthy response, but it can make us want to give up. It can make us want to give up on God and give up on people, cause us to retreat in on ourselves. You know, there's things like, like addictions. Some, some of us are, are workaholics right? Tempted, they tempt us to think that what we do is who we are, which is false. Tempting us to think that life will never look different. You know, depression can tempt us to give up on the prospect that God will ever bring joy to us ever again. You know, job loss, divorce, family strife, repeated disappointment, injustice, to give up on the idea that there is a God working to make things right. And if we're honest, that every day, Life throws things at us that tempt us to give up on an idea that God has a new life ahead, that we can feel powerless, and we can forget the Easter message of resurrection. But we aren't powerless. We're not powerless because God is present in all those realities alongside us, in those realities that tempt us to walk away or to give up hope. You know, but, but there's also nothing here that says that we should do it alone. God's forming a path forward for us. And if I could say truly what I think it means and what Paul means here is that there's no reality in your life that renders you beyond hope or your life beyond change. There's nothing, no thing, no reality in your life that renders you beyond hope or your life beyond change. God will not allow something to tempt us away without providing a way through it, through it. And some of us are here now. Some of you guys, that's what you're going through now. To trust that the promises of God still apply to us. But with that, we have to put that phrase to bed, that cliche to bed. To go to the Bible first. Allow the truth of Scripture to speak before you rely on what somebody else is saying. And realize that maybe slogans overall, all overall, are not the most helpful thing. Instead, to drop them and instead to be fully present as God is present with us. And so as as we close um, and as we head to the table today, I want to share something. You know, uh, many of us here, some of us here, um, I don't want to assume anything, are on the verge of of giving up in some way, giving up on on someone or something um, or or a challenge, or maybe even just the, the, uh, the, the, the false news that, that believing that you have nothing to offer, 
the lie to say, I don't have anything to give or anything, that I'm just kind of here and living life. That you, maybe you think that the, the meaning of real life and resurrection and the hope of Easter, you're not feeling it and you feel like it doesn't apply to you. But it's to recognize today that none of us are beyond redemption. None of us are beyond saving. And none of us are beyond a new turn in our lives. And God provides us the capacity and the people and the resources to journey onward. And so we absorb that in the word. We observe that for, for those of us that are struggling. I pray that first and foremost, while the Bible may provide some, some guidelines and history, while you may go to it for some meaning and purpose, the most of it for, first and foremost, you would find hope. You would find hope. And so today, as we approach the table, um, I encourage you that if that's you, if you're in a place right now that you're hurting you're carrying that burden and you're trying to do it alone, that, that there's something that you've been wrestling with, being tempted back to something or being tempted away from God, that you'll be able to come to this table today knowing there's a God who loves you. There's a God who offers that hope and that resurrection to you. And, um, and something a little bit different that we're going to be doing today as we approach the table is we're going to be offering um, anointing today anointing. Um, and I'll explain in a couple minutes what we're going to be doing with that. But just whatever it is that you're carrying, I just want to take a moment here. If you would just close your eyes, bow your head.